Amen. We are going to remain standing for the reading of God's word. And at the same time, we are blessing our children as they uh, go to kids worship now with Pastor Amber and our Trinity kids and sponsors. And if you are a parent with us for the first time or second time and your kids have never gone with the children, we also invite you at this time to follow them out so that you can get them signed in and then know where to pick them up after, after the activities today. So today's passage of scripture takes us to the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. And we're going to read just a few verses from Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 31, going through verse 36. And the word of God says this, Then he, meaning Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on the, not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers. Whoever wants to be my disciple, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? This is the word of the Lord for us today. Amen. We may be seated. So I um, did a, a, conducted a small poll among several members of Trinity Church this week with just this simple question in mind. What, what title do you most ascribe to Jesus Christ? When you think of, of Christ, what is the title that you give Jesus And what you might imagine uh, was what I imagined, and it came to be true. Son of God, the Almighty or or miracle worker, Savior, Lord, Messiah, friend. And and those are are wonderful, uh, true things about Jesus. But you know that if we were to pull people in the first century... The way uh, that they would primarily describe Jesus is, is not, doesn't even make it to our top five ways that we describe Jesus. They would have described Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher, right? There are 90 stories in, in the New Testament of people that came to Jesus and called him by a title. 60 of those stories, they called him the name rabbi. They, people in the first century, they experienced Jesus first and foremost as a teacher, as a, as a brilliant young rabbi that they could learn important truths about life and about the kingdom of God from. And though we would argue that the title Lord or Savior uh, or even friend is, is perhaps greater than teacher, I, I, I think that unless we understand what it means to sit at the feet of a rabbi, we won't really ever understand this thing of discipleship, which is the primary thing that as followers of Jesus, we're called to, 
to be disciples of Jesus, right? And so using the, the good research of a, of a writer, author, pastor that I'm learning from these days, his name is John Mark Comer, I want to just very briefly give you a, a history lesson of discipleship in the first century, okay? So uh, discipleship was not invented by Jesus, Actually, it goes way back to the time of, of the Greek philosophers who had different disciples under them, right? But the Jewish faith took this concept of discipleship and they also ran with it. So there were, at the time of Jesus, so many rabbis, Jewish rabbis, and they each had disciples under them. Um, the discipleship was like the top tier of education in the Jewish faith. So there were these, these tiers, right? And the first level of education in the Jewish faith was called Be'it Sefir, which simply meant the house of the book. And this was uh, a, a place where all children, all Jewish children could go to learn to read and to write and basic math. And, and they, uh, in, in school, learned to memorize the first five books of what we consider the Old Testament. And so by the age of 12 to 13, they were, they were out of this first level of education. And, and so at that point, the majority of students were done. So women, young girls at that point were considered ready for marriage. So 12 and 13 year olds were, were going into, into marriage relationships. And then um, most boys then would become apprentices under their father or business. But there was a second tier of education, and this tier was just for the best and the brightest of, of young men. It was for men only. From the age of 12 to 15, they could enter a second level of education called Be'id Talmud, which simply meant the house of learning. And this was an actual building that was on the side uh, to, of the synagogue. And in this place, they learned to memorize the rest of what we consider the, the Old Testament. So this part of the Bible, they learned to, to memorize, right? And so at that point, by age 15, then mostly everybody was done with education. But then there was this third tier where, you know, if you were, you had been on the president's honor roll, if you were, you know, in the National Honor Society, if you scored a 36 on your ACT, then you could enter into this third level of education called discipleship. And it wasn't easy to get into uh, discipleship education because uh, if you actually got the interest of a rabbi, they would sit you down and grill you to make sure that you really had memorized the entire Old Testament. They would grill you and interrogate you to see what kind of understanding and interpretation you had of, of the law of God. And, and if they considered that you were indeed the brightest of the brightest, if they considered that you had what it, what it takes, if they considered that you had the work ethic and the smarts to one day be a rabbi yourself, they would say to you, come and follow me. And those were the, the greatest words that a Jewish boy could hear in his lifetime. 
You know, there's this old saying in, uh, in Jewish tradition, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It was this, the highest aspiration of, of a young teenage male was, was to become the, 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 the disciple of a good rabbi. And they disciples. They needed to spend time with their rabbi. For most of them, that meant almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They would eat their meals next to their rabbi. They would sleep in the same place close to their rabbi. They would, they would spend as much time as possible with their rabbi. Goal number one, spend as much time as possible, as possible with the rabbi. Number two, goal number two, become like your rabbi. Dress like him. Talk like him. Take on his mannerisms. When people see you on the street, they would be able to identify, up. he dresses all crazy and stuff. He's one of John's. You know, oh, that one, he's a disciple of Jesus. Goal number three, do the things that the rabbi did. Do the things that the rabbi did. This is so revolutionary for us to understand discipleship because obviously in our context, we we don't really understand that level of of education or that level of commitment, right? And so that is one of the things that made Jesus so uh, incredibly different. In his day and age, Jesus would come to the crowds of people and he would say things like, whoever wants to be my disciple. He, He was this young, brilliant rabbi and yet... He wasn't being picky and choosy about who could come and follow him. What do you mean? I I don't have a good memory. I I didn't memorize the whole Old Testament. It's okay. You can come and be my disciple. What do you mean? I did not not come up under the, the, the nurturing of a good and healthy, strong family. It's okay. You can come and be my disciple. Well, what do you mean? I did not complete the second tier of educational level in the Jewish system. It's okay, you can come and be my disciple. Well, what do you mean? I don't have resources to contribute to your ministry, Jesus. It's okay, you can come and be my disciple. And that's what's so crazy about this rabbi Jesus that we follow. That he would look at the crowds and say, whoever wants to be my disciple. And we don't understand that. I mean, it would be like Harvard or Yale, some of the most prestigious schools of our day, putting out on their social media, if you want a full ride to our university, just let us know. I mean, who operates that way, right? Nobody except Jesus, whoever wants to be my disciple. And so throughout the gospels, the gospel writers are doing this interesting thing of of saying there were the crowds and then there were the disciples. And of course, when we talk about the disciples, we usually think about 12 men. But we also know that Jesus had hundreds of disciples, both men and women, right? Just even on resurrection day, he appeared to over 500 of his disciples, right? At one point, he sent out 72 of his disciples to go and heal and preach and cast out demons, right? We, we know that on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 disciples gathered together in a room, right? So Jesus had many, many disciples. 
right? But, but Jesus was, was doing this incredible, incredible thing when he would look at the crowds, right? And the gospel writers show us that Jesus would, would look at the crowds and there was this distinction between those that were just a part of the crowd and those that were a true disciple. It's almost like the gospel writers are asking, which one are you a part of? Are you just simply amused with Jesus? Are you just simply enthralled by his majesty? Are you just simply curious about who he is? Or are you a true disciple? Are you a true follower? Brothers and sisters, because, because even though Jesus was inviting and welcoming, even though he didn't make you jump through hoops in order to be his disciple, he was very clear that just because the ability to become his disciple was simple, to actually walk as his disciple was really hard. And he was always making sure that people were counting the cost of discipleship. At one point, there was this, this, this young man that came to him and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And you and I would have probably been, thank you, good job. Jesus looks back at him and says, like, are you sure? Because there's a cost to, that you have to pay. Because you know, like the foxes, they have a holes. And the birds of the air, they have nests. But to follow me, like you can't be in control of those things. Other people, they, they were called to be a disciple like the rich young ruler. And they would look back and say, like, man, Jesus, I really want what you have. Like, I want the benefits of what you're teaching. I want this thing that you call the kingdom of God. I want eternity. But, like, like it's too expensive of a price. Like, I can't pay it. Jesus was inviting, but he was always so honest. And that's what I love about Jesus. He was always so honest about the cost of discipleship. Jesus said, you know, it's going to hurt. To be transformed, it's going to cost you. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be the most difficult thing that you do. But as you spend time with me, you become like me. You, become to, to, you begin to do the things that I do. And that's going to take over all of your life. And you're going to have to do things that you don't want to do. Like apologize to your spouse. Like, be humble. Like, admit that you were wrong. Like, give Jesus everything that you, that you are. In our passage of Scripture, we find the disciples are, are really having this difficult time understanding what in the world Jesus means. Jesus, in, in this passage, I imagine him in his rabbi mode teaching them. Right, and any teachers in the, in the house, they, they know that in order to build on a, a, a powerful lesson, you have to have an important foundation. And so it's been a couple of years that the disciples have been walking with Jesus, and he's been establishing the groundwork for what the kingdom of God is truly about. Right, so you can't jump to algebra, right? You have to start with addition and subtraction and multiplication, right? And, and Jesus has done that. You can't jump to understanding the beauty of poetry until you truly understand how language works, right? And so Jesus had been setting that foundation as a rabbi. And here in our lesson, in our, in our gospel lesson today, like he believes that the disciples are ready for the next part 
the next lesson that is going to be so key in their discipleship. And so he begins to teach them. And he begins to say to them, you know, you, you probably expect that by following me, you're going to have safety and comfort. But actually, let me tell you, we're walking straight into danger. You, you probably think that it's a gamble of sorts. No, no, no. Let me tell you, death is certain. And so they don't understand, right, like what Jesus is saying. And so one of the leaders of the 12, they, you know, he pulls Jesus aside. Imagine that the apprentice, Peter, is pulling the rabbi aside and starting to correct him. Like, Jesus, you're, I'm sorry, like, you're, you, you've, you've, you're not teaching the lesson right. Like, you, you, miss, you don't understand how the, 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 the gospel and you don't understand the kingdom of God. You don't understand. No, let me tell you how it's going to happen. And he begins to rebuke Jesus. And before we jump to conclusions about Peter, we, we have to understand that it was incredibly difficult for, for him in the first century, even as it is for us in the 21st century, to understand that to follow Christ means that we don't despise but embrace the cross. Jesus is saying at the center of discipleship, at the center of apprenticeship is a symbol. And that symbol is a cross. And they could not understand it. How in the world would God's plan for the redemption of salvation include the shameful cross? First century Christians were growing up in an honor-shame culture. And crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. I mean, imagine in that culture, men didn't even wear pants. They didn't even wear shorts because it would show too much of their body. And there at the cross, the victim was hung naked for all to see. It was the worst way to die. Crucifixion had actually been in place Several, several hundred years before Jesus came on the scene, but the Roman Empire, they had taken this, this idea of crucifixion and taken it to the next level. They had made it an art form, actually. They had made it a weapon to terrorize the residents, the foreigners. It was illegal in the, in the Roman understanding, in the Roman law, to ever crucify a Roman citizen. It was only kept for for those that were foreigners that were the worst of the worst and so for a jewish man that the cross symbolized everything that you should work against for us here in the 21st century we've become so numb even desensitized to what the symbol of the cross would have meant for the first century believers it was not a symbol of hope It was a symbol that God had lost the fight. And yet, we read in our passage of scripture today that in order to be a disciple of Jesus, we must carry our cross. We must embrace the cross. What does that mean? What does it mean for you and for me? What does it mean for our teenagers to carry the cross, what does it mean for us sitting here in the 21st century United States? What does it mean for us to carry the cross? 
Jesus begins at the point of self-denial. And that's such a hard message to preach in a culture that is all about doing what the self wants. You want that? Don't suppress it. Just, just do what you want. And then, like, we open up scripture and it, it talks about, like, denying ourselves so that we can truly find our life. Self-denial, brothers and sisters, looks like saying yes to a million things you'd rather say no to for the sake of Christ. Some of you are smiling because you can think of those specific moments that you've had to say yes to when you really wanted to say no. It's not in my personality, Jesus. That's not how I'm, I'm wired. No, I, I'm not that bold. I, I don't want to do that thing. And yes, here I am, Lord. And it also means saying no to a million things you'd rather say yes to. There are some tensions within our very bodies, within our very spirits that are so contrary to the way of Christ. And we have to say no to those desires so that we can embrace what Jesus is calling us to embrace. The Apostle Paul later said it this way, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but he lives in me. What does it look like for you and I to carry the cross? It looks like always knowing that I'm surrendered to the will of another, to the will of God. So the way I spend money, I look over to the Lord and say, is this how you would like me to spend it? The way I spend my time, is this, Lord, how you would want me to spend it? In my relationships, the way I act in my most intimate relationships, God, is this the way that you would want me to, to spend it? The way I treat my body or the things I put into my, my body, Lord, is this the way that you would want me to treat my body? My sexual desires, my experiences look over to God and I say, God, is this the way that you want me to act and to be and to react? What is it, God, that you want? Because whatever you want, I'm in. When is it, God, that you want me to go? Because whenever you want me to go, I'm in. Whenever, whatever, however, I, I'm in. We're, we're in this series right now that has been our Lent series called Drinking from Deeper Wells. And it has been our hope throughout this series that, that we have uh, allowed you to experience practices that are maybe for some of you new, but for some of you not. But how do we go deeper in those practices? We've talked about prayer. We've talked about fasting. We've talked about, um, we, we've talked about just different, different things with um, with, with the different practices, silence and solitude and, and scripture. And, and today on Palm Sunday, we share one last one. And it's the practice of embracing the cross. And I think it's timely for Palm Sunday. On Sunday uh, that we call Palm Sunday, the disciples had no idea how much the cross would shape not just their week, but the rest of their lives. They had no idea how much 
Jesus dying on the cross would mean to them. They, they had no idea, and yet they were walking with Jesus because they were his disciples and his apprentices, and so they were there with the shouts of acclamation of Hosanna on Palm Sunday, but then they found themselves weeping in a garden and sleeping in a garden while Jesus bore his soul to the Father. And many of them followed him to the praetorium, and a few of them even followed him to Golgotha. This was not what they had in mind. Following Jesus all of a sudden felt like it was upside down and backwards from what they experienced. In 1871, there was a, a writer named uh, Lewis Carroll who wrote a sequel to his first book uh, that he had titled Alice in Wonderland. The second sequel was called Alice Through the Looking Glass. In this novel, Alice enters into this fantastical world where everything is reversed, including logic. So, for example, running means that you, you're stationary. To, to walk away from someone or something, it actually puts you closer to that thing. It's this new reality that requires this sustained mental effort to, to imagine all of the ordinary activities of life as if through a mirror, as if they were upside down and backwards. And isn't that what you would imagine the call of Jesus to his disciples to be? Come and look at life in a totally different way. That is what Jesus is asking, was asking them and what he's asking us. Come and learn what it means to think inside out with me. That, that is what it takes. And to begin with, it was completely impossible for the disciples because God's plan seemed to have no logic for them. It was illogical. I mean, it was so illogical that when the long-awaited Messiah shows up on the scene, he doesn't come saying, I'm the Messiah. He comes disguised as a baby born in a podunk town. But you know, those disciples, they, they could see past that disguise. And even though Jesus had not said it like with so many words, they knew they were fo following the Messiah of God. And even though he wasn't acting exactly like the, a, a long-awaited Messiah should act, their lives were being so changed and so transformed. Jesus was making them new people, and they could only attribute that to the fact that they were following the Messiah of God. They saw through the plan. He was indeed the Messiah, and so they sat down and they disguised a, a, a plan. They're like, this is, the, this is the solution. Here we have the Messiah, and yet we have those people in power, so this is what we need to do in order to overtake. That, this is the obvious solution. Can you imagine them around a table with ledgers or whatever, just trying to, to imagine what it would look like? Step one. We're going to march on Jerusalem. Step two, we're going to pick up some supporters along the way. Step three, we're going to choose the right moment. Step four, step four we're going to say our prayers. Step five, we'll fight a surprise battle. Step six, we will take over the temple. And step seven, we will install Jesus as king. 
seven perfect steps. This would be the way that the kingdom of God would surely arrive. This would be the way that Jesus would finally become king. And then Jesus has a counter proposal. It's like through the looking glass kind of proposal. Yes, we are going to Jerusalem. Yes, the kingdom of God is coming, guys, and it's coming very soon. Yes, yes, the Son of God will be exalted as king, and he will dispense justice and love on, on the world. But it's going to actually take us going in the exact opposite direction, a different road than the one that you disciples, especially you, Peter, have in mind. The plan is death on a cross. Jesus will confront the authorities, but they will appear to win, not him. And he will die. And the earth will get dark. And the disciples could not take it anymore. No, Jesus, you're speaking nonsense. No, Jesus, stop talking that way. No, we don't want a cross. We want comfort. We're following you because we want comfort. And then, brothers and sisters, you know the story. It happened. It happened just like Jesus said it would happen. It happened. And there, several of them find themselves at the foot of the cross on what we consider Good Friday. And the call of Jesus is never more piercing than at the foot of the cross. I have imagined that even with just a glance at his disciples' eyes, he seemed to say, Did you really suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments to your ordinary lives? No, to follow me, to follow me is to live in this upside down and backwards kind of way. To, to live in this way will require for you to do what I'm doing, to deny yourself, to carry your cross and to say yes to a million deaths. You will be constantly pulled to only act for yourself and your own selfish motivations over and over. And it will hurt deeply to choose Christ each and every day. But take up your cross and follow me. I believe that this message has never been harder to preach, although it was very hard in the first century with an actual literal cross. I actually would say it, 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 it's never been harder to preach than to 21st century Christians who say, don't tell me what to do. Don't get involved, Jesus, in my personal life. These are my choices. And yet down through church history, we seem to hear this distant bell that is ringing, pick up your cross and follow me. No half measures will do. It will cost you everything, but it will give you everything. It will give you everything. There's a classic book written by Diedrich Bonhoeffer titled The Cost of Discipleship. 
In it, he pens the famous quote, when Christ bids a man to come, he bids him come and die. But here in the modern day, people are saying that there should be another book that is written following that same line of thinking, but called the price of non-discipleship. Because there is also a price that we pay when we choose to not be disciples of Jesus. So today, as we think about what it means to embrace the cross of Jesus, I invite you to not just consider the cost of following Jesus, but would you consider the cost of not following Jesus? Would you consider what you're giving up if you choose to become, to stay as one of the crowd? No half measures will do. To follow Christ, brothers and sisters, means that the risen Savior lives within us. It means that his spirit abides in us. It means that we have the power and the authority given to us by Jesus. It means that we have the fruits and the gifts of his spirit flowing in us. It means that we have purpose in life. That is the cost of discipleship. It is to receive more than we even give. In the 11th century, I'm going to ask the worship team to come. In the 11th century, I, I finished with this illustration. It was, it was during the, the dark times of, of the Crusades in church history. There was a, a, a group, a small group of, of soldiers that called themselves the Knights Templar. And... Um, The story goes that these soldiers would come to be baptized in full armor. And they would come to be baptized, but at the point of being dipped into the water, they would hold their sword up, up over the water. As if to say, you can have everything, Jesus. Just not this. Just not the violence, just not the injustice that I provoke upon other people. But you can take everything else, just, just not this. I, I don't know if, if for a moment that either makes you a little mad or if it makes you like a little bit giggly, right? Like that's silly. But I wonder, I wonder what, what it would be like for us to actually be honest with ourselves this morning as we begin to think about Holy Week and look towards resurrection, I wonder what it would look like if when we go down to be baptized or when we say we're following Jesus, we, we're honest. So we hold up a picture of our relationship that we're not yet ready to surrender to God, a picture of a boyfriend, of a girlfriend. What, what would happen? What would happen if, if we're honest and we hold up a picture of our addictions, of our habits, and we say, God, you can have it all, but just don't talk to me about these things. Don't have me surrender these things. For some of us, it's just a picture of a calendar. Like, this is my time, and I'm going to spend it however I want. And if I have time for you, Jesus, then that'll be fine. But, like, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want you to, 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 to be a part of every. Thing, every decision that I make. What would happen if we were honest? We hold up the Wi-Fi modem. Oh man, we have some, some Wi-Fi habits that I'm not ready yet to surrender to Jesus. That's not the cross that I want to carry. 
or our iPhone. Say, man, what I do on my phone, that's my business. I don't want anybody telling me, not even Jesus, how I, how I, how I use this thing. For some, it's a label. It's just a label. You know, whatever label it is that you, that you have labeled yourself as. And for others, it could just be a wallet. God, you can have it all, but like, you can't have this. Like, I'm going to spend my money and I'm going I'm to do the things that, that I want to do. What would it mean? What would it mean for us to actually be honest with Jesus in our discipleship journey? This week, I am inviting you to practice embracing the cross this week. Just like we've encouraged you to do other practices in, in Lent, this week, I'm, I'm inviting you. And there at Info Central, there are some bookmarkers like this that if you, if you want to be serious about this practice, I invite you to take one. But it invites us to just sit with God in prayer this week and ask ourselves these questions. What does it mean for me to carry my cross and follow Jesus here in the 21st century? What obstacles are there between me and truly following Jesus? What are the things that I'm holding up over the water saying, all but this, Jesus? Am I spending time with Jesus? Am I becoming like Jesus? Am I doing the things that Jesus did? Is there something in me that needs to die in order that I may truly live? In every generation, in every generation, there seems to be a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word. What would it be like if you and I were one of those people? Let us respond to the Lord.